Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. We continue in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're looking at the, the last part of this chapter, Matthew 17, verses 22 through 27. Matthew 17, verses 22 through 27. As they were gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Father, we praise you that Jesus has done this for us, that he allowed himself to be delivered into the hands of wicked men, to be killed, and to rise from the dead on the third day. Lord, we thank You that we see in these verses that Jesus is the God-man who knows all things, that He is the God-man who can do all things. And yet, in His glory and beauty that we've seen at the transfiguration, He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we might be saved. That we might be free. Lord, we are Your sons this morning and we are free. We are free sons and daughters of the living God. Free from sin. Free from death. Free from condemnation. Freedom. Thank You for freedom. Thank You that we are free. Thank You that we are free to obey You and serve and love others and not use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Not use our freedom to give offense, but use it, Lord, to serve and lay down our lives for others just as Jesus laid down His life for us. Father, we pray that You would be with us this morning as we think about these words of Your Son. We pray that we would learn all that You want us to learn, that we would be transformed and changed and built up and humbled and convicted, that we would be filled with Your Spirit, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. Lord, that we would be filled with joy in You. So be with us, God. We beg You for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last Sunday, we saw that Jesus is the God-man healer and the one who destroys the works of the devil. So when life seems impossible, we should trust 
in Him with a true, active, and living faith because Jesus is our only true, active, and living Savior. This week, we see that Jesus is the God-man. <laughs> you, you do know, beloved, that that's the main application of every pericope in the Gospels. Amen. Who is Jesus? It's the main application. Every single sermon that I will preach in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who is Jesus? This week we see that Jesus is the God-man who knows all things. He's omniscient and can do all things. He's omnipotent. He has all power. But who humbles Himself so that we might be free. Free from sin and free to obey Him and free to win others to Christ. This week we see that Jesus is the God-man who knows all things. He's omniscient and can do all things, He's omnipotent, but who humbles Himself so that we might be free, free from sin, free from hell, free from condemnation, and free to obey Him, and free to win others to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have sort of a, a rabbit trail first point, though. What about verse 21? I wasn't going to say anything about verse 21, but then I went to this church last Sunday night and they had to preach on the last part of Mark's gospel. And uh, I thought maybe I should handle this again. I, I looked up the last time I handled this was two years ago in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And I, I want to go over this again in case some of you had questions about this. What about verse 21? How many people actually have verse 21 in their Bible? Sister Phyllis, got that King Jimmy. Come on now. Verse 21, which is in the King James Version, the New King James Version, it's in the Pew Bible, in, in brackets, the New American Standard, but this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. Matthew 17, 21 is not printed in some of your Bibles. It's in brackets in the uh, NAS Bibles in our pews. It's in the King James Version. It's in the New King James Version. How should we understand this? Well, this is the first point of this sermon to help you understand this, to strengthen your confidence in the Word of God, and to give you answers to God's critics, the critics of God's Word, and to understand these words. First of all, we believe that the Bible has no errors. <laughs> we, we believe the Bible has no errors, not in, not in syllable, not in jot, not in tittle, not down to the word, not, not, not down to anything. We, we, we believe the Bible is without errors because God wrote the Bible. We uh, believe that the, the, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, we affirm that inspiration... Inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture. That's a big word, autograph. It, it, it basically means the, the original writings of Scripture, the original ones as they were written down by uh, the, the writers in the Old and New Testaments. Those original writings, we believe, are inspired by God. 
which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. You see, we don't have the autographs anymore. We don't have those original writings. But we understand that what we have here is an accurate reflection of those writings. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the Word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. We deny that any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. And so, uh, why, why do some Bibles have this, this 21 and some don't? Well, because certain manuscripts, early manuscripts that we have of Matthew 17, don't include that verse. And then other manuscripts, later manuscripts, they do include that verse. And so we have uh, these variants in, in the, the manuscripts. And how should we think about that? Well, that's why I'm going over this today. And this is sort of head heavy. If, if you want to study this more, I have great articles and things that I can send you to read, but I just want to briefly cover it. And so how are we to think about the autographs of Scripture, these original writings, and the fact that we don't have them anymore today? One helpful writer on this is named Michael Kruger. He's a professor at RTS uh, Seminary in Charlotte. He writes this, Even though we do not possess the autographs, textual scholars have acknowledged that the multiplicity of manuscripts, so these other writings that contain the Scriptures, allow us to access the original text. Eldon J. Epps notes, The point is that we have so many manuscripts of the New Testament that surely the original reading in every case is somewhat present in our vast store of material. Gordon Fee concurs, The immense amount of material available to New Testament textual critics is their good providence because with such an abundance of material, one can be reasonably certain that the original text is to be found somewhere in it. Of course, one might wonder why God chose to preserve the text in this manner. Why not just preserve the autographs? Why didn't God just allow Christians to help to, to keep the autographs sealed away in a vault somewhere? For one, it is historically unlikely that the autographs could have survived until the present day, especially if they were being regularly used. But it is also possible that God may have not wanted the autographs to survive. One reason uh, may be uh, because how quickly such documents would become objects of veneration, if not worship. They might have become the equivalent of Gideon's ephod in Judges 8, a good gift the people began to treat as an idol. Of course, we cannot know for sure why God providentially did not preserve the autographs, but in one sense it is fitting. It reminds us that the Word of God, like God Himself, is not bound to a physical location or to a physical object. It is a Word that is not contained. It is a word that goes forth. And so we do not have the original written text of the New Testament, but we have numerous copies. There is no other book in ancient literature that can even compare with the number of Greek New Testament manuscript copies and New Testament copies in other languages. We have around 5,500 Greek manuscript copies of the New Testament. We have twenty to 25,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament in other languages. And, and furthermore, Daniel Wallace comments, yet if all of these were destroyed, the New Testament text could be reproduced almost in its entirety by quotations of it in sermons, tracts, and commentaries written by ancient teachers of the church, known as church fathers or patristic writers. To date, over a million quotations from the New Testament by the church fathers have been cataloged. How does this compare with the average classical author, so other 
uh, writings of that time, the copies of the average ancient Greek or Latin author's writings number fewer than 20 manuscripts. Thus, the New Testament has well over a thousand times as many manuscripts as the works of the average classical author. When it comes to the temporal distance of the earliest copies of the New Testament from the original, New Testament textual critics again enjoy an abundance of materials. From 10 to 15 New Testament manuscripts were written within the first 100 years of the completion of the New Testament. To be sure, they are all fragmentary, but some of them are fairly sizable fragments covering large portions of the gospel or Paul's letters, for example. Within two centuries, the numbers increased to at least four dozen manuscripts of manuscripts produced before A.D. 400, an astounding 99 still exist, including the oldest complete New Testament, Codex Sinaiticus. The gap, then, between the originals and the early manuscripts is relatively slim. By comparison, the average classical author has no copies for more than half a millennium. So with all of these manuscript copies, we're able to have in our hands exactly what God wants us to have concerning His perfect revelation to us so that we might know Him and trust Him and delight in Him and follow Him and obey Him. So that's just a little background history of how we got our New Testament, right? And I know this is sort of heady, uh, but again, if you want to read more on it, I can give you that. And I, I remember when I was a new Christian and I heard sermons like this, I was just glad there were smarter people than me that knew all that stuff. <laughs> and so if that gives you help like it did me, I hope it does. Well, what about the variants? Because that's what we're talking about here. We have a variant in verse 21. We have a variant uh, 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 of the text in Matthew 17, 21. Tim Barnett uh, of Stand to Reason Ministries write this. Places where the manuscripts differ from one to another are called variants, right? So some texts, some texts we have, have Matthew 17, 21, some don't. A textual variant is any place among the manuscripts in which there is a variation in wording, including word order, omission or addition of words, even spelling differences. It's not the number of variants that's important, it's the nature of the variants. Most variants are trivial, affecting nothing. In other words, that they have no bearing on Christian doctrine. In fact, more than 99% of these variants fall into this category. There are only a small number of meaningful variants. A meaningful variant is a variant that changes the meaning of the text that are actually viable, which means they have a good possibility of being a part of the original wording. But even these affect no cardinal doctrine. The New Testament has an impressive transmission history that should give Christians confidence that we have the words written by the apostles. Greg Kokel says, this means that our New Testament is over 99% pure. In the entire text of 20,000 lines, only 40 lines are in doubt, about 400 words, and none affects any significant doctrine. Scholar D.A. Carson sums it up this way, what is at stake is a purity of of, of the text of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be doctrinally true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance. We have what God wants us to have. God perfectly... What, what's the point of all this? God perfectly preserves His Word just as He pleases so that we have exactly what He wants us to have today in our Bibles. 
Your word, O Lord. Psalm 119.89. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Matthew 4, 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus quoted the word from the Old Testament when he did battle with Satan in Matthew 4. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. 1 Peter 1, 23, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the Son of God, that the man of God, excuse me, may be competent, equipped for every good work. John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, was Jesus' promise to the apostles who then wrote down the words of Jesus. At this church, we have a statement of faith, and our statement on the Scriptures says this, We believe that the Holy Bible is written by men divinely inspired and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction, that it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter, that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. And I love, I love, I love the story about Billy Graham when he was, uh, before he was well known and he had a friend who was actually thought of as a greater and more well known evangelist than he was, Charles Templeton. And Templeton had all these questions about the Bible and the truthfulness of the Bible and can you trust the Bible? And he began to ask Billy Graham all these questions and, and he couldn't answer the questions. He didn't have answers for why this is different from that and why that, it doesn't seem to be harmonious with that and all this and that and the other. And, and Billy Graham said, so I went back and I got my Bible. And I went out in the moonlight. And I got to a stump and I put the Bible on the stump and I knelt down and said, Oh God, I cannot prove certain things. I cannot answer some of the questions Chuck, Charles Templeton is raising and some of the other people are raising. But I accept this book by faith as the Word of God. Beloved, I would encourage you to do that. I, I would encourage you to draw a line in the sand now and always say, I'm going to go with Jesus. I, I don't care what these eyes see. I don't care what these ears hear. I don't care what the people in the world say. I'm going with Jesus and I'm going with His Word. I accept Him and His Word by faith. Charles Spurgeon said, The Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend the lion. All you have to do is turn him loose and the lion will defend himself. <laughs> Amen. And so, how do I handle textual variants when we come to them in the Bible? I preach them. <laughs> I preach them as the Word of God. <laughs> and I do that because my mentors have men like John Piper and John MacArthur. I preach the text. Because what's taught in this variant is taught in other places in the Bible anyway. <laughs> and so when the disciples, remember, they were not able to cast this demon out and they failed to cast this demon out and they come and ask Jesus why. 
Jesus emphasizes the need for prayer and fasting. Matthew 17, 21. But this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. Beloved, this is the same truth that is taught in Mark 9, 29 when Jesus instructs His disciples in the very same way. This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer, Mark 9, 29. And fasting is often associated with prayer, and the Bible teaches fasting in other places. So this is all biblical doctrine. Never mind the variant. This is taught in God's Word. And Jesus is emphasizing the, the fact that they have to trust Him. They need Him, and prayer points to our un, inability to do anything and our need for God to help. And so Jesus says, only by prayer can you cast this demon out. You need to trust God and rely on God because only through God can you do the impossible. MacArthur says, prayer is the highway that faith takes into the power of God. Prayer is the highway that faith takes into the power of God. Prayer demonstrates our faith in God, our dependence on God, and our humility before God. And so we pray, we pray, we keep praying. When we face impossible tasks that God has called us to perform, we pray. When we're afraid to share the gospel, we pray for power and boldness. Uh, when, when, when we're afraid of anything, when we have any impossible obstacle before us, we pray. We go to the Lord and pray and ask Him for help. I've mentioned this to you before, uh, but I love the acrostic aptat, A-P-T-A-T, from, from Pastor John, acknowledge you can't do it. This, this works for anything you're going to do. Let, let's say that you're very distracted even right now. I, I just, I'm distracted from this sermon. I've got this going on afterwards and I just can't focus. So what do you do? What do you do when you need help? Because you know you should focus. You acknowledge you can't do it on your own. A, Lord, I can't do this. I can't listen to this sermon. I'm so distracted. I'm not going to get anything from this, Lord, unless you come and help me focus in and hear what you want me to hear. Acknowledge that you can't do it on your own. A. P. Pray. Lord, help me. Lord, give me strength to do what you've called me to do. I know that you're with me. I know you want me here. I know you want me to listen. I know you want me to, to, to receive the Word of God. Help me receive. Help me hear. Lord, help me be a good listener. Pray for help. By the way, I just realized last week that some of you don't know that I send these out every week. And, and so if you need to follow along an outline, you've got this. You can print it out before you come. Steve's got it on his phone right now. Yeah, we got smartphones now so we can save paper. You just pull up the PDF and you can go through it on your phone. And if that helps you, then do that. Pray that God would, would, would help you. Then trust Him, A-P-T, trust His promises. Trust that He's with you. Trust that He'll help you. Trust that He'll never leave you or forsake you. And then act. you got to do what you got to do. you got to do your duty. you got to do it. Act it out with God, what God calls you to do. And then afterwards, thank Him. A-P-T, act, T, thank. Thank you, Lord, for helping me. That's a wonderful way to go through life in doing any task, uh, doing it in God's strength and not your own. That's point number one. Addressing verse 21 and reminding you that the Bible is trustworthy and faithful. Number two. 
Number two, moving on to verses 22 through 23, Jesus again tells His disciples about His death and resurrection. Jesus again tells His disciples about His death and resurrection. Look at verses 22 and 23 again. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. Jesus tells His disciples He will be delivered into the hands of men. Now there are two ways that Jesus was delivered into the hands of men. Can you think of them? One, by the betrayal of Judas. That's one way in which Jesus was delivered in the hands of men. One of His own disciples betrayed Him ruthlessly and wickedly. The devil entered Him. The devil put it into his heart to do what, 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 he, what he said. I just read it in my Bible reading. It was when Satan entered him to betray Jesus. But also, and ultimately, Jesus was delivered into the hands of men by God Himself. God delivered His Son over to death. Luke 22.22 speaks of, 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 of what God did and what Judas did in the same verse. For the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite self-designation of Himself, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Determined by what? Determined by who? God. We're determinist at this church. We, we, we believe that God has determined everything that happens. Everything, everything in your life, the good and the bad, the numbers of hairs in your head, the ones that are falling out when you, you, you brush in the morning, the ones that are turning gray, God determines that. Amen. The little birdies that fly in the sky, God determines their flight path from the biggest things in the world, things going on in China and Russia and Ukraine and everywhere. God determines that, and He determines that mouse that came out in my office last night. <laughs> I hadn't seen a mouse all year. And I saw one last night. I thought, what? what a night. He determined that. God determined that mouse to come out last night in my office. He determines everything. From the biggest to the smallest to what seems most insequential to, to, the, to the most consequential things in your life. God determines everything. That's God's sovereignty. But, but notice what the verse said there, verse Matthew, Luke, Luke 22, 22. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Man is responsible. We are responsible. Determined by God, but we are responsible for our actions and what has been revealed to us in God's Word. And, and, and so Judas betrayed, God handed over. Through God sinlessly, sinlessly handed over through the sins of Judas. God ordains the free actions of men. Romans 3, 24-25, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Akave, can you tell me what propitiation means really loud? Really loud. God's loving anger removing sacrifice. So if you need to know that word propitiation, that's child's play to Akave. Go ask him and he can explain propitiation to you. God's loving anger removing sacrifice. God put Christ forward as a propitiation. God sent him to the cross. God killed his own son. Some people don't like to talk that way. Their thinking has made them crazy. 
God ultimately killed His Son on the cross. God is the first cause of everything. He's sovereign. He's king. This is how the apostles prayed in Acts 4, 27-28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God ultimately delivered His Son into the hands of wicked men. R.T. France, a commentator, comments on Jesus being delivered. It is the same word which will later be used for Judas's betrayal and which is often used in the New Testament descriptions of Jesus' mission of suffering. While it certainly is appropriate to the action of men, the passive the passive form of the verb here, may also echo the frequent Old Testament references to God delivering someone into the hands of an enemy, thus picking up the divine necessity of Jesus' suffering from the must in Matthew 16, 21. Remember, Jesus said, I must do this. I must endure this. I must suffer because God has determined this, and God is handing His Son over into the hands of wicked men. Now, beloved, consider the horror of being delivered into the hands of wicked men and of the holy God. Do you remember when David had counted the people and he sinned? He took a census and he wasn't supposed to. He counted the people and that was sinful. And and do you remember God gave him three options for punishment? And do you remember what he said? He, he said, don't let me fall into the hands of men. Don't let me fall into the hands of wicked men who are ruthless and show no mercy. Let me fall into the hands of God, for with God there's mercy. 2 Samuel 24, 14 and 16, Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for His mercy is great but let me not fall into the hands of man. Jesus was delivered into the hands of merciless men, wicked men. And think of what He endured for you. Beloved, this is love. This is God reminding you of how much He loves you. Jesus was delivered by His Father into the hands of wicked men to be spit upon, to be laughed at, to be mocked, to have a crown of thorns put upon his head and crushed down and he bled, to be beaten, to be beaten, the Bible says, beyond human recognition, beaten so badly that you couldn't tell that this clump of human flesh was human. Jesus endured that. He was turned over to the hands of wicked men, crucified, suffering, horrific death. He was turned over to the hands of, of wicked men so that you and I might be saved. That is love. That is love. But you know, David, David, David chose to be uh, given into the hands of the Lord. And, and that text goes on to say in 2 Samuel 24, 16, and when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who is working destruction among the people, It is enough! Now stay your hand. I love that picture of the mercy heart of God. God is a God of mercy. 
God, that's why David chose, let me fall into the hands of mercy heart. God is mercy heart, the, the hound of heaven who, who has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy on. And, 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 and before the angel of the Lord destroyed Jerusalem, God said, enough, enough. Stop. Stop the destruction. Stop the punishment. Mercy, mercy, mercy. But beloved, on the cross, God did not relent. God did not say stop. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up. On the cross, God did not have mercy. He crushed mercy. He crushed His Son. Jesus bore the wrath and curse and judgment of God. God did not relent on the cross. God poured out all His fury, all His hell, all His wrath He poured out on His only Son. And Jesus died and rose again so that you and I will never go to hell. Never. Friends, if you're visiting us with us today, that, that is the heart of the Gospel. That is the heart of the Gospel. Gospel means good news. And, and the Bible teaches that all of us have sinned against God. We've, we've broken God's laws and commandments. We've, we've told lies and we've cheated and we've stolen and, and the Bible forbids adultery and, and calls for sexual purity and, and we sin against God by having sex outside of the covenant of marriage. We, we have sexual perversions with, with men sleeping with men and women sleeping with women that God forbids. And, and Jesus even says, if you look with lust, then you commit adultery in your heart. So it's not just what we do, but what we think. And, and, and we, we sin by violence. You see the murder in the world, the murder in our city, killing. People, people play games where they try to hit people and knock them out and, 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 and you know, steal. Uh, uh, and yet Jesus says, if, if you're angry with your brother, you deserve the same punishment in hell is those who murder. And so we lose our temper and murder in our heart. The, the Bible condemns everyone. You, me, everyone is condemned in, in, in sin. And, and because we've sinned against the holy God who is infinitely great and glorious and holy, we deserve an infinite punishment in hell. We deserve God's wrath in the burning fires of hell forever and ever and ever. That's what we deserve. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, saved us from our sins. And, 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 and your sins have to be totally, totally washed away. You, you know, in, in, in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, uh, how many how many good deeds had Adam and Eve accrued before they they failed? There was time in which they walked with God, where they they had amassed a certain number of good deeds. And so let's say it was like this, and 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 they did one one wrong thing. So some some people who think well, as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad, I'll get to heaven. No. Adam and Eve had a ton of good deeds, and one little bad deed got them 
kicked out of God's presence because God, the infinitely holy, can't be in the presence of one itty-bitty little sin. What are we going to do? Because <laughs> we've, all, we've all got sin. Jesus came. Jesus came. Je- Jesus is, is God in the flesh. The Son of God and God. And He lived a perfectly obedient life. He's the only one who perfectly obeyed God's law. He did what we should have done. He lived the perfect life God intended us to live without sin. And then He died on that cross. He suffered the punishment we deserve. You see, God can't just forgive sin. That would be unrighteous. It would be unrighteous for God just to forgive sin. That that, that would be like a, a judge in Philadelphia saying to a murderer, Oh, I'm just going to forgive you because I'm forgiving and merciful. You're free to go. That's unrighteous. That's wrong. That judge would be fired as an unjust judge. God is not an unjust judge. He cannot and will not just forgive sin. There must be a payment, a payment so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so there was a payment, and there's only been one payment in the history of the world for the sin of mankind. Jesus Christ on the cross paid that penalty. He paid for sin. He suffered God's hell on the cross. You know, as I tried to describe that physical suffering, that was nothing compared to the spiritual agony that Jesus went through being crushed by His Father. Crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And He died. And He was buried. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. Don't, don't let that get old, right, right, Anthony? That don't get old. No, no, you heard it before. That's, that's good news. That, that's good news. He rose from the dead. He's alive. He's alive. And he's the only one who did that. He's the only one who's conquered death. And friend, trusting in Him is the only way you'll conquer death. Trusting in Him is the only way you will escape death. And He calls all people everywhere, repent, turn from sin, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Friend, would you do that today? If you've not believed in Jesus, we're inviting you to do that today. To trust in Christ to be saved. And you can know you have eternal life. If you trust Him, you can know it. You don't have to wonder. You can know that nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. If you believe on Him. If you believe on Him. You can't work for this. You you can't do anything to earn this. You you can't pray enough. You can't fast enough. You, 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 You can't do the right things enough. You can't work for this. You can't work for God's love. It's freely given through Jesus. Freely given by grace, you've been saved through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. To him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Friend, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If you want to talk more about that afterwards, I would love to speak with you and pray with you. We want everyone here today to walk out born again, saved, living for Christ. And beloved, uh, 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 finally on this verse, we need the help of God to understand the Word of God. Let me remind you about that again. We need the help of God to understand the Word of God. We need the help of God to get the gospel. 
to get it, to, to not only understand it mentally, but to actually believe it and trust in Christ. Remember, Jesus tells his disciples a second time. He's already told them this. What would happen to him? That, 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 that he, and, and, and a third time, if you count what he said to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they still don't understand. They still don't get it. Jesus has plainly told his disciples that he's going to die, be killed, and rise again. And they don't get it. I mean, you have the greatest teacher in the universe ever telling these disciples face-to-face what's going to happen, and they don't get it. Why should I think y'all going to get what I'm saying unless God comes and acts? Why should you think, as you teach your children or anyone else, that they're going to get it unless God comes and grants illumination? God has to help us get this. God ultimately has to save sinners. Acts 16, 14 says of Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Beloved, pray. I mean, get prepared to come on Sundays. Lord, open my heart to what is going to be preached from the Word of God. Help the pastor faithfully preach the Word of God. Let me hear what you want me to hear from your God. Before I sit down to read my Bible, Lord, open my heart to receive what you want me to hear. I need you, God. I can't do this without you. We need God's help. And then finally, these last verses, a lesson about temple taxes, freedom, and the power of God. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half shekel tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. What tax? What, what tax is this? The, these tax collectors come to Peter asking him if Jesus pays the temple tax. These are not tax collectors from Rome who are t- uh, collecting taxes for the Roman government. Uh, this, this was a tax that every Jew had to pay for the upkeep of the temple. R.T. France again comments on this, an annual half-shekel tax based on Exodus 30, 11 through 16, though it was not... Uh, their uh, irregular payment was paid for the upkeep of worship in the temple by most adult male Jews, whether resident in Palestine or not. And what, what does Exodus 30, 14 through 15 say? Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. I heard one say, this is ironic that these tax collectors come for an atonement offering and Mr. Atonement is standing right in front of them. The Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus is the atonement. And they come asking for this tax. They come asking Peter... Does your, does your rabbi pay this tax? And, and we see that Jesus pays it. Peter answers correctly. Yes, Jesus 
pays it. Jesus is not anti-temple like you think he is. He's just the fulfillment of everything the temple pointed to. Temple ain't going to save you. <laughs> the rebuilt temple ain't going to save nobody. Jesus is the temple. He's done saved us. But Jesus is not anti-temple. The, 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 the temple points to Christ. And, and beloved, notice, notice, notice in these verses, Jesus knows. It's possible that Jesus just somehow overheard this conversation between the temple tax collectors and Peter. But, but if, you, if you look at the text, it talks about them coming into Capernaum and then Peter having this conversation and the, the tax collectors going up to Peter and then Peter comes into the house and then Jesus opens up and already knows what's going on. I'm more persuaded of Ligon Duncan's view. Listen to what Dr. Duncan says. You remember in John chapter 21, verse 17, after Peter had denied the Lord three times and the Lord was involved in restoring Peter to the ministry, and he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And Peter kept confessing, yes, Lord, I love you. And finally, do you remember what Peter says? And the Lord says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Peter knew by experience that the Lord knew all things. He'd been out in that street talking with those tax collectors and come into a house one day and learn that the Lord knew all things. And the Lord knew his heart. Peter had learned that. And we see it here in this instance. This is a testimony again to the divinity of our Lord that he has the capacity to know things that we could not know in and of ourselves. By the way, J.C. Ryle says in passing about this event, there is something unspeakably solemn in the thought that the Lord Jesus Christ knows all things. You know, it's popular today to have the WWJD, what would Jesus do? Bracelet or t-shirt or other paraphernalia. The question is, whenever you're faced with a decision to make, you ask yourself, what would Jesus do in this situation? Let me pose something even more solemn than that. You realize that every time you make a decision, every time you have a thought, every time you mutter something under your breath and the person you are muttering at can't hear that the Lord Jesus knows all things. He sees all things. He's there. How does that correct the way we operate in our actions or thoughts, our decisions, our words? The Lord Jesus knows all things and that is unspeakably solemn. Beloved, think of this. Think of what Jesus has already told us in this text that would support Dr. Duncan's exegesis. He knows he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. He knows he's going to be killed. He knows he's going to rise from the dead. He tells them what's going to happen to him. He knows everything. He's telling his disciples what will happen. Jesus is God. Jesus is God Almighty. Jesus is Jehovah. And Jesus, the God-man, teaches us that the sons are free. Look what He says to Peter. Look what He says in verses 25 through 26. What do you think, Simon? 
Simon Peter, another name for Peter. From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he, when Peter said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Free. The sons are free. The sons of kings don't pay taxes. Jesus uses an illustration here. The sons of the kings don't pay any kind of tax. They're sons of the king. Jesus is the son of the king, and he's also the king. The temple is his father's house. Do you remember when Jesus was a young man and, and, and he got separated from his parents and they're trying to find him, they have to come back to Jerusalem and they've lost him and there they find him in the temple and Jesus answers, Mommy and Daddy, Luke 2, 49, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The temple is Jesus' father's house. Do you remember when Jesus cleansed the temple? Do you remember what he said about it? John 2.16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus doesn't need to pay the temple tax. He is the temple. <laughs> he is the temple. I can, I can hear him saying it. I am the temple. And they fall back. Jesus is the temple of the living God. He is God. He's the one greater than the temple who's here, Matthew 12, 6. He himself is the very presence of God, right? The temple uh, represents the presence of God. He is the very presence of God. And the physical temple and all the ways that God was worshipped through it would be passing away. In Christ Jesus, by faith alone, in Christ alone, we are free from temple worship. This building is not the church. We don't have to come here. That church burnt down in New Jersey. They don't need that building. We, we worship Jesus in spirit and truth. We worship God anywhere, anytime. We, we, if our church burnt down, we would gather on the sidewalk. In Christ, we are free from temple worship. We are free from offering sacrifices. We are free from coming to God through a sinful high priest. We are free from not being able to enter the very presence of God. We get all of this through Jesus, through His life and death and burial and resurrection. Think of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He's better than Abraham, better than Moses, better than Isaac, better than David, better than the temple, better than sacrifices. He's the fulfillment of all God's promises. They're yes and amen in Him. And <laughs> Jesus speaks this to Peter as if He's included. Sons, plural. He didn't say the son is free. He says the sons, plural. If you're in Christ Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are the sons of God. You are the sons of the living God. That's what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is what... The Holy Spirit teaches us through the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We become sons of God both by birth and by adoption. We're born again into the family and we're adopted into the family that we might be sons of God. 
I told him about this in Sunday school. Ladies, you're sons of God. Why is that important? Sometimes I'll change the language to daughters because the Bible uses that language too. But you're sons of God just like I'm a part of the bride of Christ. (laughs) And you're sons of God, meaning the son's got the inheritance. The son's got the inheritance. You get the inheritance. You get the inheritance, ladies, just like the guys. You're sons of the living God. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. And so Jesus says the sons are free. We're free, so don't pay the tax because we're free. Is that what he does? No, that's not what he does. That's not what he does. Jesus humbles himself. Jesus humbles himself and seeks to give no offense. Look at Matthew 17, 27. However, not to give offense. However, not to give offense. Not to give offense. Not to give offense. Not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Beloved, see the amazing humility and condescension in the Lord Jesus Christ here for sinful men. I mean, see the amazing humility and condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ to sinful men here. Remember where we've come from in the last couple weeks. We've been on the Mount of Transfiguration. We've seen the glory of the Lord. We've seen the Lord Jesus shine like the sun. His glory being revealed, uh, unveiled. And we've seen that He's God. He's the glorious God-man. King of kings and Lord of lords who is worthy of all honor and adoration and worship, who's free. He doesn't need to pay the temple tax. It reminded me, and I heard one pastor speak this, Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We've just seen you you shine like the sun, and yet you're mindful of sinful temple tax collectors and men. You're free, free not to pay, but you humble yourself, not to give offense, and, 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 and love sinners. Jonathan Edwards talks about this, this amazing, uh, 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 excellencies of, of Christ in, in His diverse excellencies. And I want to read some of them to you. There do meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness, which we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, and infinite condescension, which we see here, paying the temple tax, the Son of God Almighty paying a temple tax. Infinite condescension. There meet in Jesus Christ infinite justice and infinite grace. In the person of Christ do meet infinite glory and lowest humility. In the person of Christ do meet 
infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. There meet in the person of Christ the deepest reverence toward God and equality with God. There are conjoined in the person of Christ infinite worthiness of good and the greatest patience under sufferings of evil. In the person of Christ are conjoined or joined an exceeding spirit of obedience with supreme dominion over heaven and earth. In the person of Christ are conjoined absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. In Christ do meet together self-sufficiency and an entire trust and reliance on God. Beloved, this is another beautiful picture of who our Lord and God is in His infinite humility when He is infinitely glorious. One commentator comments, if Jesus refused to pay the tax, they would conclude that He rejected all that the temple stood for and accordingly turn away from Him and His message of salvation. Beloved, he, he did this for love. To not to give offense. In humbling Himself, He paid the tax. If, if Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, humbled Himself this way for the sake of lost sinners and sought not to give offense, beloved, how much more ought we to give up our freedom in Christ and humble ourselves sometimes and seek not to give offense. Think about what He did. This has so many applications to daily life. Usually when we get angry, I mean, if we got this, we would never get angry again in a sinful way. If we got this, you would never lose your temper again. Ever. Because if the Lord of glory, the Lord of glory, came down and endured what He endured and did what He did. Who are you, Joseph? Who do you think you are to think you can get angry? Now, yes, there's righteous anger, but I'm talking about sinful anger. If we got this, we would never get angry again to see what the Lord Jesus did. 1 Corinthians 8.13 Paul said he gave up his freedom in Christ. He gave up his freedom in Christ to eat meat. 1 Corinthians 8.13 Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Acts 16.3 Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul and Timothy, totally free not to be circumcised. (laughs) Free! Paul even argues vigorously against circumcision if you think you're going to get justified by it. You know, he didn't circumcise Titus. He's free. The sons are free. And yet, he had Timothy circumcised, giving up that freedom in Christ. Why? Not to give offense and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to lost sinners. You know, Peter says this. He, he, and it, it, we don't know for sure, but I wonder if he, he remembered this happening in Matthew's gospel. Uh, and he wrote in 1 Peter 2, 15-17, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
living as slaves of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We're free. We're free. And so we can live in radical ways of love and sacrifice and not giving offense to others that they too might be saved. Philippians 2, 3-5 Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And we see what Jesus did. If we keep reading Philippians 2, humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, that He might be given the name above every name. That every, the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, we see this example of Jesus here today that He's free and yet He pays the tax not to give offense. Beloved, we should follow in His steps and seek to love and not give offense and win others to Jesus by the way that we live. Now, if we preach the gospel, we're going to give offense. <laughs> if we tell people the truth, we're going to give offense. Right? It's offensive to tell people you're a sinner and deserve hell. <laughs> That's offensive. <laughs> There's some offense we can't avoid. But we don't want people not to come to Christ because we're jerks. Yeah. If they don't come... It's because they're offended by the message of God that we accurately proclaim, but not because we're jerks. And so we don't want to give offense. And we want to follow Jesus in this. And then, notice, 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 Jesus can do all things. <laughs> Jesus can do all things. Who, who controlled fish and did what He wanted with fish in the Old Testament? Do you remember any stories? Yeah. Psalm 105, 29, he, talking about the, 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 the plagues of Egypt. He, God, the Lord Almighty, turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. God rules over the fish. Jonah 1, 17, And the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah Yahweh, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Here, notice Jesus tells Peter, go fishing, and the first fish you hook is going to have the money we need in it. And go pay that for you and, my, and me. As one friend of mine said, that's a boss move. <laughs> I, I guess that's a young people phrase. That's a boss move right there. That's a mic drop right there. That, that's like me telling Ted, Ted, we need some money for the pizza. Go to, go to the Schuylkill, go fishing, and that first fish is going to have five $100 bills in the mouth. And we good. This is a boss move. He, he's showing them again, he is the man. He is the God man. All he does is win. I, I loved how John MacArthur said it. Some fish was on a divine mission Go fish, goes down, puts that dill in its mouth, doesn't even swallow it, just leaves it in the mouth and looks around, there's that hook, see, pops it up, there's the coin. I have to believe that he threw the fish back. You can't waste a fish like that. In fact, that fish may be in heaven. 
I don't know. Swimming in the river of life, for all I know. Marvelous fish. In the Old Testament, God used a big one. In the New Testament, he used a little one. But that's incredible. That's what I call the provision delivered. The payments demanded, the principle was discussed, and the provision was delivered. The Lord was going to pay his taxes and even set all of divine power in motion to make sure it got done. Beloved, again, just think about what this says about the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about what this says about our Lord. I I love how John Piper put it. If Jesus is bringing the temple to an end for the true children of God because something greater than the temple is here, then it is fitting that He show that He is worthy of our worship. This miracle involves divine power and wisdom and knowledge. Someone had to be sure that a shekel precisely worth four drachmas, two for Jesus and two for Peter, was dropped into the sea. Someone had to be sure that the fish scooped it up but did not swallow it all the way. Someone had to be sure that the fish that scooped up the coin would be near where Peter drops his hook in the water, and someone would have to be sure that the fish bites Peter's hook without swallowing the coin and stays hooked till he gets the coin. When Jesus says that this is, in fact, all going to happen, just as He says, He shows Himself to be just what Peter confessed Him to be, the Son of God, worthy of worship and trust. You don't have to go anywhere or pay anything to worship God. He has come to you. There He is. Here He is. Jesus Christ. And beloved, be encouraged that Jesus will provide all His people need to do what He's called them to do. Jesus will provide all that His people need to do what He's called them to do. Jesus will provide for you, dear believer. You can trust Him. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He is your provider and He is your protector. Again, hear Piper The other point of the miracle is that when you act in freedom and love, not under coercion or constraint, God Himself works for you in ways you would never dream. It's like the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus said to the disciples, who have five loaves and two fish borrowed from a little boy, you feed the 5,000. When they set out to do that, just as when Peter sets out to pay the temple tax, God causes the five loaves and two fish to become enough to feed them all. And God causes a coin to be there in a fish's mouth. The point is not that God will always work a miracle to get you out of some trouble or scrape, but that He will do whatever He has to to help you pursue the path of freedom and sacrificial love that may seem impossible to you. I love how Legan Duncan summarized this portion of Scripture in Matthew 17. First, Jesus here makes it clear that though believers are given tremendous freedom under the gospel, freedom from the doctrines and commandments of men, freedom from the burdensome yoke of the ceremonial law, yet those freedoms are to be used for the sake of others. Second, we learn that believers need to learn to trust God's providence to supply them for all their needs when they are in the way of duty. And he told a funny story about a professor at RTS named Douglas Kelly. He was a young man studying in, in seminary and working to try to uh, provide for himself, and he, had a, he needed an alarm clock. His alarm clock broke, and his alarm clock he needed to, to be able to get up to go to work on time and to get places on time, and his alarm clock broke, and he came to church, and he asked people at church, does anybody have an alarm clock I can have? And this elderly lady in the church uh, said, 
uh, Doug, have you prayed about this? Have you prayed about this? And he's like, no. No, I haven't. And he did. He prayed about his alarm clock and his alarm clock started working again. Now, I, I, I take that as a rebuke that we, we, often, we often don't go to God first. We, we live in America. Everybody's got money. Everybody is abundantly rich. Everybody in America is abundantly rich. I hope you know that. Everybody. I mean, our trash is better than the way some people live. And so we just automatically, oh, I'll just do this, do that. We, 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 we don't rely on God. It's dangerous to be rich. That's why Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Because we hardly ever rely on God. Because we just, I know where money's coming from. I know where I'm eating. Lord, make us desperate. And we, you know, somebody's sick. Did you go to the doctor? Did you pray? Trust in God's provision. Did you pray about it? Did you pray about it? Have you talked to your father about this? And finally, we learn here that believers are to embrace the deity of Christ. Do you see the three testimonies of the deity of Christ here? That means that Jesus is God. First of all, Jesus claims to be the unique son. I am the Son of God. I don't pay the temple tax. Secondly, He knows Peter's thoughts when Peter is out in the streets. Thirdly, He knows because He has decreed that there is a coin in the mouth of one fish in the Sea of Galilee, and that one fish is going to be the one that Peter pulls out first. You see the testimony to the deity of Christ here? Jerome, the ancient Christian commentator, said of this passage, I know not which to admire more here. Our Lord's foreknowledge... Or His greatness. And beloved, we have all of this. We, we have all of this provision of our Lord. We have Jesus as our God-man Savior. We, we, we have freedom. We have this freedom. We, we have this promise of provision. And, and we have access to God to pray any time about anything when we have a need with the assurance that He will hear us because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Hear what this pastor says about this passage. This whole story was introduced by the omniscient prophecy about the Son of God and the Son of Man in verses 22-23. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him and He will be raised on the third day. This sovereign Christ who governs the drop of a coin and the path of a fish has set His face like flint toward Jerusalem and death. Why? To purchase for us sinners the glorious things that we've been talking about. We can't become the children of God. We're sinners. We don't deserve to find a coin in a fish's mouth. We deserve to be thrown into the mouth of hell. We are not free from the condemnation of the law. We are under the curse of the law. Unless the Son of Man gives Himself freely as a substitute for us on the cross and purchases for us forgiveness from all sin and escape from hell and freedom from condemnation. And that is what Jesus did. That is what Holy Week is all about. That is what we need to believe and embrace and ponder in the coming weeks. 
The foundation of our everlasting freedom as the children of God is the death of Jesus. All God's promised help in our lives was bought by the blood of Christ. Believe this. Cherish it in the coming weeks. Come and worship and bring a friend to hear about it on Easter Sunday and every Sunday. Jesus is the God-man who knows all things and can do all things, but who humbles Himself so that we might be free, free from sin, free to obey Him, and free to win others to Christ. Jesus is freedom come in the flesh. He's the freest of all beings in the universe. He's the freest of the free. He's the free gift of heaven. He's the free gift of God. He's the free gift of grace. He's the free gift of righteousness. He's the free gift of holiness. He's the free gift of redemption. He's the free gift of glory. He sought freedom. He bought freedom. He brought freedom. He wrought freedom. He fought for freedom. He won this freedom when He died on that cross and rose up from the grave. He freed Himself from the chains of death and conquered sin, death, and Satan so that all who repent and believe in Him might be saved. That's my King. I wonder if you know Him today. He's the Son who sets us free so that we might be free indeed. He frees from sin. He frees from hell. He frees from death. He frees from boredom. He frees from cares. He frees from worries. He frees from fear. He frees from bondage. He frees from slavery. He frees from all idolatry. He sets us free from the love of money. He frees us from adultery and fornication and pornography and all sexual immorality. He frees us from lying and stealing and rebellion and murder and coveting. He frees us from lovelessness and hypocrisy and selfishness and all sin, which is God murder. He frees us from the wrath of God. He loves us. And He freed us from our sins by His blood. That's my King. He frees from all false religions that lead to hell. Islam and Hinduism and Judaism and Buddhism and all other isms in the world. He sets us free from the law of sin and death so that we might be married to Him in wedded bliss forever. He frees from all addictions, afflictions, and contradictions. He frees from all pain and sorrow and tears. He frees us from the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. He frees us from the deepest longings of our hearts because He satisfies them all by Himself. For freedom, He has set us free. He ushered in the new creation and will finally set it free from the bondage to decay so that it might enjoy and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's the Lord who is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom indeed. He's the brave heart of brave hearts and the mercy heart of mercy hearts, so that in Him we can cry freedom and mercy all at the same time. That's my King. Do you know Him? He frees from disabilities. He frees from barrenness. He frees from cancer. He frees from heart disease. He frees from leprosy. He frees from old age. He frees you from everything you don't want, wish you never had, and never want to remember. He frees you from your past, present, and future that you long to be erased from your memory forever. He frees you to enjoy Him as the greatest treasure of your life forever. He frees you to delight in Him above all things. He frees you to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. He frees you to love His law and commandments more than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. He frees you to deny yourself and pick up your cross daily and follow Him. He frees you to hate everything you most cherish in this life compared to the love you have for Him. He frees you to love with an incomprehensible love the most lovely object that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. That's my King. That's my King. Christ Jesus, they'd betray and kill. He bore God's wrath upon that hill. He took our curse. His blood they'd spill, but death could never hold Him still. He rose again to all fulfill and our salvation finally seal. By faith alone, we're just and will grow in Christ and do His will.
pay tax, give no offense or steal, and humbly follow Christ's ideal. For Him we live with holy zeal. He is our joy, our all, our thrill. And Father, we thank You for the freedom You've given us in Christ. Lord, we pray that what we read and hear would be true of us, that You, Lord God, would be our treasure, our joy, our all, our everything, that we would delight in You. Father, we thank You that you have given us your son, that you've, 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 you've ordained that this, this uh, testimony be written out about him so that we could see who he is, that he is the God-man who knows all things, who can do all things, who is the son of the living God. We thank you, Lord, for his example of humbling himself not to give offense. Father, we pray that we would do the same. That we would do the same, Lord, that we would be humble, loving people, that we would only offend people with the truth of the gospel and not with our behavior or actions. Father, we pray uh, uh, that we would, like Paul, know nothing among the people we minister to except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Father, we pray for anyone who's here today that does not know the Lord, that today they would repent and believe the gospel and be saved. We ask, oh God, You would help us sing to You now and give You glory. For Jesus' sake, Amen.